Welcome to It's the Pictures That Got Small, a movie club where we watch those movies you never got around to seeing, now that we've got way too much time to see them. I'm Nate DeMeo. I also do a podcast called The Memory Palace. And I'm Karina Longworth, host of You Must Remember This. Each week, we're going to turn to a guest to suggest a movie, some big screen classic we've never seen, and we'll all watch it on our small screens while waiting this whole thing out. We'll let you know at the end of every episode what next week's movie will be so you can stream along with us. And starting next episode, we're also going to ask you to help independent cinemas and other institutions and their employees in hopes that we can help make sure they're still around when we all get to go out to the movies again. And each episode, we'll be talking about the movie, playing a game or two, and check in on our bunker viewing, what we've been watching that's been helping us through. And we'll start here with today's guest, the writer-director Ryan Johnson of Knives Out, The Last Jedi, and The Brothers Bloom, and Brick, who was super easy to find because he is currently sheltering place with Karina. We're married. I mean, I'll start with the stuff that I've been, that we don't watch together, that I've been sneaking during the day, which is I've been keeping up on Alex, Alex Garland's show, Devs. Oh, yeah. I really love it. I think it's great. And he's wrote and directed all of this, so it's basically just like a six-hour-long Alex Garland movie. It's terrific. And then Karina and I usually watch uh, either like a really high-quality, great movie or a game show or something. You don't want to. You don't want to explain what game show we've been watching. That I will. I'm getting to it. Really I'm building about. up to it. It's the main entertainment value of me being here is explain <laughs> the game show. So I'm going to lead up to it. Let's talk about the quality stuff first. We watched. Uh, Actually, it's funny. I realized, I thought I had, I think I had seen it maybe years ago, but I had totally forgotten it. But we watched uh, Things Change, the David Mamet movie. Oh, I've never seen that. That might be the only one I haven't seen. It is so charming. It is so good. It's lovely. It's a really good thing to watch right now. Oh, great. Um, it's not, because you know from the very first minute of it that it's going to be a great story, but it's not going to stick a knife in your guts at the end of it. You kind of have this, it's a very lovely spirited movie and he co-wrote it with Shel Silverstein. Oh. Um, so that's the smart stuff. And then We've recently discovered, it's on Hulu, it's this game show called, I think now defunct game show, called Spin the Wheel. With <laughs> Which could literally Jack mean anything. Shepherd. What happens on Spin the Wheel? Well, there's a big wheel. <laughs> okay, okay. And at some point, the contestants... It's like a Wheel of spin. Fortune style wheel where it's all these wedges with different dollar amounts. Sure, a wheel, yeah. They, they spin the wheel, there's not a lot to it. They, they go up and they spin it. I don't. I, I don't know why it's so. But wait, 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 wait. But what happened? What's on the wheel? What do you spin? What? How does the game it's work? It's dollar amounts. They, that's that's kind of what's genius about. They figure out it's just dollar amounts on the wheel, and it's it's like the old uh, big money, no whammies. Like yeah, there sure. are also slots on the wheel where you lose everything. It, but what's ingenious is they figured out a way with because there's only room on the stage for this one prop of this wheel. It's not like they have other games. They spent all of their budget on this big ass <laughs> wheel. But they figured out a way to keep it entertaining for half an hour. And I also uh, every time they spin the wheel, and I think uh, if, if something during this leads to our divorce, it will probably be me doing this one too many times. I do an impression of, in Ed Wood, 
of Landau <laughs> doing Bela Lugosi saying when he says, pull the strings. But that, every time they spin the wheel, I say, spin the wheel. And it's yep. hilarious yes, and he never does. gets old. It yes, never he gets does old. do that. The other thing about Spin the Wheel that's entertaining is that we don't know why it exists. It's executive produced by Justin Timberlake, and every episode begins (laughs) with like this like hostage (laughs) video of Justin Timberlake explaining the game. Everybody knows how to spin the wheel. Let's go, wheel! Give me a miracle. But when you put insane amounts of money up there. And it just feels like, what are you doing, Dax? What are you doing, Timberlake? Like, there's I just, know there's what they're doing. To... It's fucking awesome. I don't know. I, I love that. They're, I, I love it. I'm all. I'm completely for it. I, it, I, <laughs> it just really feels like there's something. There's some other reason to do this show other than to entertain the masses. The wheel is actually hooked up to like a, a horrible, like Snowpiercer-like machine right, exactly. that's grinding up human bodies for to to right. make it, it Soylent in the background. In the state of Utah. <laughs> My spin the wheel. Um, first of all, well, a Top Chef, but really the only reality show I watch besides Top Chef is uh, Ink Master, <laughs> which is the tattooing reality show it's hosted by Dave Navarro. What? It, it's on like season seventeen. Whoa. I watch them all. I have no tattoos. Cam, you do not have what it takes to be Ink Master. It sucks. I came here to do what I like to do, and the kind of tattoos that I know are going to look. Good. Um, I know so much about tattooing because of the show. <laughs> the only re- reality shows I really like are ones that are competitions of skill that by watching the show, you are going to like learn the aesthetic rules that you yourself are then going to apply to your judgment. And so now I'm a very like astute judge of shading and all the skills of ink. Um, ink. And it's it's ridiculous. <laughs> but the other thing that's so good about it is that the stakes are so high <laughs> because it's not just a fallen souffle. It is a permanent part of someone's body. <laughs> I like to think that someday, much like Pee Wee Herman in Pee Wee's Big Adventure, you will find yourself in a biker bar with your life being threatened. Absolutely. And this knowledge will save your skin. And what I would like for you is that at some point you are given the opportunity to spin the wheel. Oh my God. Celebrity spin the wheel. Sign him up. <laughs> <laughs> on the on the more hoity toity on the, the film side, I also watched like a wonderful uh Shirley Clark uh, documentary about Ornette Coleman, which is so charming and lovely. Yeah, that movie's great. That movie's great. Um, And then I randomly, and didn't realize it, I had like a a back-to-back Arthur Hiller film festival where we watched the Out of Towners. On the one hand was like, was, I totally enjoyed, but like, it was actually fairly wild to see just kind of like how kind of like toxic Jack Lemmon's character is. Like there was just (laughs) something about it that just did not age well, even though like he's wonderful and Sandy Dennis is wonderful. Um, But the direction is like, has so much energy. It was a genuinely kinetic and thrilling thing. And then to immediately watch a movie that I didn't even realize he directed that my wife needed to watch for work, Love Story. Like I watched Love Story for the first time. It's wild to kind of like see someone like Arthur Hiller, who I don't really think of as, you know, having some signature style. It was interesting to sort of see um, those two movies back to back, which I think he actually did back to back. And they are so clearly Arthur Hiller movies. But then I watched um, for the first time mm. The Seventh Seal, uh, which is uh, the opposite of The Big Wheel. <laughs> well, in a way, well, aren't we all? Well, aren't we all spinning The Big Wheel against death? I watched this, you know, really one of the first days when one of those nights where it really felt like it was all 
starting to go down and that life was really changing. It was all kind of hitting me. And like, I'm like, oh, let me watch The Seventh Seal, totally not knowing, even though this is some movie that I've, you know, I could, you know, draw from memory stills <laughs> from this movie. I did not know that it was a plague story. I fundamentally missed that. And I am generally like a person who oh, kind yeah. of likes to steer into the skid, you know, like I kind of like to, life is difficult, not to steer away from difficult things, but to kind of confront them. It was really deeply moving experience. And then I also had the, the experience immediately after where I was kind of like shaken up in a really good way and feeling really good about it. But then, you know, it was like, I need to unwind a little bit and flipped on Netflix. And the first thing that popped up was this Jared Kushner documentary. And I watched like the first like four minutes of it. And it just starts with people like living in one of these low rent Jared Kushner property apartments. And they're like getting sued for $400 because they don't replace the thing that they themselves did not break and all this like horrible shit. And in the context of like having watched The Seventh Seal and having been like shaken up by a great work of art and then turning on that thing, I for this fleeting moment, like got with like the depths of my soul that the world is being affected by this like literal slumlord who was literally calling his literal supermodel sister-in-law so that she could text her dad who was a doctor so that he could post on Facebook questions about what Jared should do about the pandemic. And it was like profoundly disturbing. And then I woke up the next day and it all kind of like slipped away. So that was me. And now... Let's spin the big wheel over to Karina Longworth. My spin the wheel, I guess, right now is Shark Tank. Like, all I want to watch is Shark Tank. And Fantastic. I can't really explain why, other than it's just comforting to, like, you know, watch Barbara say, I'm out. You know, <laughs> I just because I feel like I'm out. In terms of other quality things, for the next season of You Must Remember This, I won't tell you what it's about, but um, I had to watch the movie Pretty Baby, directed by Louis Ooh. Mall. And then we kind of had like a mini Louis Mall film festival after that. We watched Atlantic City, which is on the Criterion channel right now. Um, it's really great. And then we watched another film on the Criterion channel, which you really have to dig to find. You know, I, I love the Criterion channel so much, but they have a lot of hidden gems that are available that they don't advertise on the front page. But you can find them if you search for them. And one of them is this Louis Mal documentary called God's Country. It was released in 1985 or 1986, and he started shooting in the late 70s. So Louis Mal is, you know, a French guy. Um, his first major film that he uh, I think he, he won the documentary Oscar and the Palme d'Or at Cannes for um, a documentary that he co-directed with Jacques Cousteau. And then he went on to to make feature films, um, fiction films. But in between making two films in America, Pretty Baby and Atlantic City, he went to this small farming town in Minnesota and, you know, just kind of, you know, met everybody in the town and filmed their lives. And then he ran out of money and uh, went to go make Atlantic City. And he came back to the town five or six years later. And at this point, they're in the middle of like the Reagan farm crisis. Oh, wow. Um, which is something that Ryan and I have become very aware of because weirdly we watched three movies released within four months of each other in 1984 that were all about that. The River starring Sissy yep. Spacek and Mel Gibson, Country starring Jessica Lange and Sam Shepard, and Places in the Heart, which is, um, you know, the Sally Field, you like me, you really like right. me Oscar win. But I mean, it's set in the 1930s, but it's obviously like infused with anxiety over agriculture in the 80s like melancampisms yeah 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 god's country it's, it's really it's really a good watch and um even though it you know is about 
ultimately people going through um, an economic struggle, which I'm sure many people are right now as well, it feels very distant from our, our current crisis. So we were trying to figure out what would be kind of the defining movie to start this podcast with. And it just kind of popped in my head that I've never seen Castaway and I probably should have. And it also seemed like a good movie because we're all kind of dealing with isolation and how to just wake up in the morning and do what needs to be done without being able to rely on our usual sort of social fabric. Um, Ryan, had you actually seen it before? Oh, yeah. That's on the theater. When Karina had mentioned it, I looked at Tom Hanks's IMDb and there's, you know, 47 movies or something like that. And I counted and I had only not seen seven of them, which was both insane to me, but also like when you think about it and when you think of how much of a hit maker <laughs> Tom Hanks was like over and over and over again for so long, it actually wasn't all that surprising. But it was surprising that I hadn't seen Castaway, except when I was sort of thinking back to like 2000 and thinking back to my hipster life, seeking out obscurities and stuff like that. It did make sense that I might have missed what I kind of assumed was kind of like a, a goofy desert island movie. Um, I fundamentally had no idea what movie this was. Well, it also I remember at the time, and like the Wilson thing was almost like a, yeah. a, a pre-internet meme sort of um, that the idea of oh, it's so funny and wacky that this guy is talking to a volleyball named Wilson and shouting Wilson, you know, that almost I think became went viral. For yeah, lack I of felt a like term. I when I you know this movie came out when I was twenty years old, and when I was twenty years old, I felt like I didn't need to see it because I had seen totally. it because of just that being so pervasive in the culture. But then you actually sit down as an adult and watch it, and it's a really different movie, and there's a lot more to it than a, like a deranged guy on an island talking to a volleyball. Um, before we get to that, Karina, can you set up where this movie comes in, Bob Zemeckis's uh, career and Tom Hanks's career? Can you situate it in time for us? Yes, I can, Nate. When we were watching it, Ryan and I, we were talking about how both Tom Hanks and Zemeckis were coming off these big Oscar wins for Forrest Gump and that Castaway is infused with the freedom of filmmakers who have reached that fuck you peak and can do whatever they want. And so that was our impression. But when you actually take a look at the history um, in the years between Forrest Gump and Castaway, both Hanks and Zemeckis were extremely busy. And them being able to make Castaway is not the result of one big hit, but like a shitload of accumulated power. So Zemeckis, after For Forrest Gump, made Contact and What Lies Beneath. Um, what Lies Beneath actually opened up in the same year as Castaway um, in the year 2000, just a few months before. Um, and so between Forrest Gump in 1994 and the Polar Express in 2004, and at this 10-year period, Zemeckis directed an unbroken run of five films that grossed at least $100 million. And within those 10 years, Tom Hanks made 14 films. And it's an insane run. Wow. It's Apollo 13, Toy Story. Saving Private Ryan, You've Got Mail, That Thing You Do, and all of our favorites, The Green Mile. Um, so after Castaway, Hanks goes on to do Road to Perdition and Catch Me If You Can and The Da Vinci Code. But there are some stinkers that start to seep in, too. There's The Lady Killers, The Terminal, Larry Crown, Extremely Loud and Incredibly right. Close, which is a movie I definitely saw and completely forgotten he was in. So Castaway like starts to look like a peak of his career in terms of it being this great performance in a really interesting movie that made a ton of money. Sorry, am I making up that he made actually uh, 
what lies beneath that he made that in the during he shot that during the hiatus while tom hanks was losing the weight yeah because of the nature of the movie where you know tom hanks you know has to bulk up you know to sort of be the kind of like heavier you know middle-aged hanks to a certain degree that we're kind of used to and then you know he has to credibly become a castaway and lose the weight as i understand i think there was a a two-year or at least solid one-year break and during that period Zemeckis took the whole crew and just busted out another movie while Hanks, you know, dieted and exercised. Crazy. But with Zemeckis, you know, he has this great run, too. And then his career, it's it's more of like a slow decline, at least in terms of box office success and like the centrality of his movies to the culture. You know, he kind of got on this mocap train with The Polar yeah. Express and A Christmas Carol. And those ma- movies, they made a lot of money, but sort of who cares about them? And then Flight was sort of a mini comeback, but it didn't quite eke out a million dollars at the box office. And then his last three films are The Walk, Allied, and Welcome to Marwin, which were all financial failures and generally perceived to be bad movies, although I really liked Allied. I didn't see um, the... What What was The Walk? I don't even know what that movie is. That's the fiction remake of um, the documentary um, about the, the high walk, high rise oh, right. walker who yep. crossed between the, the two towers. Um, you know, that movie is definitely an example of, I think, what is sort of the negative impression people have of Zemeckis, where it's that he is focused on kind of cold technology over storytelling. Um, you know, it's. I think it's fair to point to The Walk as, as an example of that. But I actually really like a lot of his movies because I think they're melding the state-of-the-art technology with a real interest in people. That's the thing with all his movies. Like, I think there is that perception that he's obsessed with technology, but, the real, but then you actually watch the film, like even with The Walk, like that, you know, and I'm... You know, my, my friend Joe sure. Gordon-Levitt is like starting in the walk. I think he did, he did a fantastic job. And then I think that in specifically in the section where he's doing the walk, which is kind of the, you know, it's the most like CG heavy section. And it, at the same time, it's, it's fantastic filmmaking and it's filmmaking not towards the end of let's show off what the technology can do, but it really is building this incredibly tense um, and uh, sequence that's like kind of incredibly impactful uh when you watch it so so i think there's i think that what karina said i, to, I totally agree with in terms of zemeckis's work in general is that i think he's kind of sometimes kind of unfairly perceived as having this obsession with tech in reality i mean you know all of his movies you go back to death becomes her or or who framed roger rabbit you know he's always been pushing the limits of tech but i i think it's, it's not at the expense of uh these movies engaging with interesting human stories so let's get to this story. I have to say that, um, like Karina, you know, I knew about Wilson and I knew that he makes fire. I fundamentally thought that at some point in this movie, Give Me Some Lovin' was going to play and there would be some montage of Tom Hanks, like, realizing that if he... That if he puts coconut oil, you know, on this hill, he can slide <laughs> down like, like it's, you know, a water slide. I didn't realize that on some level, like... This movie has more to do with like body horror yeah. than like escapist fantasy. I, I was fundamentally sort of like not prepared for just how, uh, you know, to a certain degree, how like kind of, you know, brutal life on the island was going to be. It's a way more interesting movie than I thought it was yeah, going to be. Yeah, there's this, especially that, you know, sort of one hour where he's kind of by himself on the island. I mean, it has a feeling of a one man play almost. I mean, it's not. 
um, certainly like they are doing sort of cinematic trickery in some cases, but it it does feel like it's a showcase for to watch an actor in experience humanity. And also in terms of the filmmaking, I mean, it's the, you know, it is the thing. I'd be like taking away dialogue and the storytelling, the visual storytelling that Zemeckis is, you know, absolutely incredible at in all of his movies. He's, he's uh, just fantastic at that kind of very clean, but visually interesting visual storytelling. It's he, he gets a chance to just flex that muscle to a degree that's like, kind of a dream to watch, you know, especially in the pre-Wilson sequence, especially before he can start talking to himself, I think. It's it's really cool to see how you get beat for beat. Oh, wait, he's trying to do this, but he can't do that. And so he gets this, but then that, you know, it's it's really beautifully. It's really cool to watch. When I first I flip on the movie and I see the angel wings, which feels, you know, so heavy handed to me, then there we are, we're in Moscow and there is Tom Hanks in his sweater, and he is a FedEx guy, and he's barking orders at people, and he's talking about the demands of time. Five can either destroy us or it can keep us warm. That's why every FedEx office has a clock. Because we live or we die by the clock. We never turn our back on it. And we never, ever allow ourselves the sin of losing track of time. Um, I think the movie is like laid out all in front of me, right? Like, I think that... Here's a guy like Steve Martin in Cheaper by the Dozen, who is obsessed with efficiency and is clearly like a high strung, you know, employee of a very difficult job. And the lesson that Tom Hanks is going to learn is to like loosen up a little bit and he's going to come back a man changed for the better and ready to marry his beautiful wife and be a good husband and finally slow down. And it is so not that movie. Nate, where did your, because you, you, it sounds like you really had an impression that this was like going to be a late John Hughes movie. <laughs> I did. Where, I'm curious, I'm curious, like where, where that impression formed, like how you, how you got that perception. I, part of it is, is probably Tom Hanks bias, right? That like, you know, you see Tom Hanks, you know, you see him sort of doing the, I've created fire bit which turns out to be like so like powerful and earned and like a beautiful thing and like a great revelation of character and i probably saw clips while he was talking like conan o'brien or something Mm. like that like i think that knowing about wilson not not even realizing that the handprint is his bloody hand you know like i really sorry for the phrase but like i really missed the boat on this one Um, (laughs) you were at sea as i was saying the beginning of the movie continued to kind of like set up a movie that I was expecting it to be. Like, I'm sure, I was sure that there was hardship. I knew that it was going to be grueling, but I really thought that on some level it was going to be a probably emotionally affecting, but ultimately escapist right. adventure movie. And I didn't realize like quite how, I don't know, kind of like biblical it feel. Like those things that felt like they were setting up, you know, these storytelling uh, devices that were going to come back in and they were setting up a problem that would be solved later on and and things were going to be wrapped up in some storytelling bow. Like it really felt like the logic of creating this story was like problem solving throughout. Once the plane starts to go down, um, it very much seems like the writer and director and probably Hanks are sitting down thinking themselves in a realistic way, what happens next? Like what things will he encounter? How will he get through them? And it is just sort of wave after wave of of trial that he you know overcomes. And that's not like adventure movie logic. It's like the logic of the book of Job or something like yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. It makes me happy. I feel like the 
I feel like at one point when we were watching it, I was like, because I feel like there's probably some people who have the same perception of this movie as, as, as you did before you watch it. I feel like if I think I said to Karina at some point during the film, if this had this exact film had been, you know, directed by John Huston and starred Jimmy Stewart, this would be considered kind of a brutalist classic <laughs> kind of be. Yeah. And it, I think that, yeah, I, I feel like if, if anyone out there kind of has the perception of it that you're talking about, I'd really encourage them to revisit or to visit this film and to actually take a look at it. I think it's it's so interesting. Speaking of John Huston, Ryan, what's the name of that um, John Huston movie with Robert Mitchum and the nun on the desert island? Heaven, heaven knows, Mr. Allison. Heaven knows, Mr. Allison. Yeah, yeah, yeah that was fantastic. Yeah, people yeah. should watch that too. So, what about you, Karina? Where did it, your assumptions uh, uh, get upended or not? You know, when the movie came out, um, when I was in college, I was too cool for it. Um, I assumed that it was, you know, maybe fifty percent Wilson, fifty <laughs> percent like Tom Hanks, just like you know, annoyingly acting. He certainly was not like an actor that I personally cared about at that point. I mean, when you talk about this history of of these him and Zemeckis like having this capital after Forrest Gump, I I was one of those people in 1994 who was just like, oh, Forrest Gump, Pulp Fiction's totally. the best picture of the year, and so, um, you know, I I was kind of biased against. Um, you know, the, those two guys reteaming. Um, so it just wasn't something that I would take seriously at that time. And then I never, ever thought about watching it since. Um, and, you know, now watching it kind of made me realize how much I do like Zemeckis as a director. Um, and even though I do think that that there is that element of sometimes his movies have kind of a cold technology over humanity, when he gets that blend of it correct, it's that he's the best. It's the, it's the best, best merging of technology and storytelling of any of those guys of his generation are on that level. I'm glad that I watched this film for those reasons. But then also the what I couldn't have expected is this the way where it's almost like a French endurance film. Totally. Um, and not just when he's on the island. I mean, the whole you know, lead up to him going on the island with the package going to Russia and 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 even just the, like the long family dinner. I mean, these there's something that's almost like Cleo from five to seven about it. I mean, there's there's a, a sense of observing life happening. And then, you know, I think the movie takes a real turn when he comes back from the island. Such a surprising turn. Um, I actually think that I think that that part of the film is maybe the most interesting to me because of how melodramatic it is. Yeah. Um, it really it it's almost like I don't you know I don't know anything about this but it's almost like there were studio notes that's like don't forget that women are watching this it becomes you know this like very sort of florid tale of romance that can't be I always knew you were alive I knew it but everybody said I had to stop saying that that I hadn't let you go I love you you're the love of my life. You know, after this endurance experience, that really got me. I feel like you're it, the movie makes you vulnerable and then it really kind of like sucks you, socks you in the heart. I was totally surprised again by the ending. Even as the stuff on the island had upended my expectations, I was still sure that I was heading toward certain types of conventionality. All of it got sort of shaken up and kind of like turned on its head in ways that just felt um, smarter and smarter and smarter at each turn. 
And then one of the things that I found really powerful watching it a few days ago was that there's something about when he returns to Memphis, there are obviously like the jokes. There's the thing where he has the lighter and, oh my God, look how, how comfortable life is here. Maybe it was just the context that we're in, in watching it, but it felt a little bit like the way that reading like a Murakami book feels where everything is just a little bit off and suddenly yes, there's like magical things happening. And in this movie, there are magical things. Like the whales are clearly magical. Like the angel stuff is is essentially magical. But like by having those little magical elements, it makes all the quotidian stuff, the things that you would encounter in your daily life, like it makes you see them sort of anew. I'm looking at the people having their like office chit chat and I'm looking at the spread that they're going to have at FedEx and I'm looking at all this sort of like ritualized, corporatized logic of events. And... You know, and even when, you know, he gets to Helen Hunt's house, I just had this like really kind of powerful feeling of like, oh, this is all the stuff that we do when we're on our own island. Small talk is is its own fire making. You know, the spread is there to like sustain us. I don't know if I would have gotten it like on a different week in a different watch. But watching it now, I was really struck that I can barely think of a movie that is able to kind of like make weird daily life. And I really appreciate that. Speaking real quick, just about also in praise of Tom Hanks, it's been really, I mean, I don't know, for me, someone who's been, you know, an actor who's been so ubiquitous, I think for all of us since we were young and who I always liked, you always like it, but you, I feel like when I was growing up, like I, you know, even when I was like in my twenties, it's like, oh yeah, I like Tom Hanks. Oh yeah, he's really, he's good. And it's been recently, I mean, both through the roles he's been doing recently and stuff like, you know, Captain Phillips and, you know, Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. And uh, he's, he's, I feel like every time I watch him in a new part, I have a moment at some point in the movie where I'm just like, oh, my God, I'm just like smack between the eyes by how good Tom Hanks is. And I feel like I have the same thing when I revisit his older movies, too, that I really, when I was growing up, did not realize how fucking terrific he is as an actor. Man, He's just so great. And he's been so great for so many years, you know, and it's it's just it. I don't know. It's it. I'm I'm just doing a little uh, little Tom Hanks gush here. But it, it really has struck me, especially recently, like, oh, man, this he's he's going to go down in the books as like one of you know uh as one of those guys that we think like i said like like jimmy stewart who i'm sure he probably gets compared to a lot but um can we talk for a second about the product placement of it all you know it's funny i remember like when this movie first came out fedex was still relatively new enough as a I mean it was not new it's existed a long time but kind of gaining ground as an alternative to the postal service it felt at the time much more product place almost like a little bit of an eye roll of oh this is an ad for FedEx whereas now FedEx and UPS are such just woven into the reality of our day-to-day lives it almost feels like oh yeah it's FedEx it's like the mail almost it's almost easy to kind of miss it. But FedEx is also like, I mean, it is fundamentally woven into this movie. It's not just like, oh, it's a FedEx plane. He's a FedEx worker. There are FedEx logos. And it's not even just that like, 
you know, the CEO gets real screen time and name checked twice with praise. It's also like the logic of the movie is FedEx logic. Like that thing I was saying before about, you know, in the beginning, he says that losing uh, track of time is a sin. And I was expecting him to, you know, be disabused of that fact on the island or whatever. It turns out that no, actually what this guy and his corporate ethos you know, uh, bring to the island is the thing that saves. I don't know about any of that, Nate, but one thing I am absolutely certain of is that entire beautiful monologue you just gave is verbatim word for word what Robert Zemeckis pitched to the FedEx executives (laughs) when he was asking for permission to use their brands in this movie, because that was beautiful. I am now a FedEx convert. Okay, guys, was this a good movie to be watching right now? Karina, you go first. Yeah, I I think it's kind of um, the perfect way to ease into our uh, shelter-at-home new lives. Um, Who better to walk us through the process of self-isolation than Tom Hanks, (laughs) who, as Ryan has said, is our Jimmy Stewart um, but also who we know is is dealing with the virus himself. So, um, yeah, it, it just it feels like you're having your hand held and like walked into this scary new world while at the same time being, for all the reasons we've already discussed, a really high quality film. I think uh, Castaway is absolutely a great movie to watch right now. Um, not even because of any kind of like isolation ennui, although there's that layer too, but mostly because it's just a really well-constructed and really entertaining movie. And I think that's kind of why um, Zemeckis was kind of, I don't know, only only Zemeckis could go to that island. Like he, he he's a, such a showman of a director in his heart. And, uh, you know, from Back to the Future on, the one thing all of his movies have in common is they're narratively tight and the storytelling is always just, like, watertight. They're like a Swiss watch. Um, And this movie has that. It's just a really entertaining, fun ride from moment to moment, while even when it's being kind of a very realistic um, uh, sort of survivalist tale. So, so yeah, it's fun. Watch it because it's fun. For me, like, there was a moment, you know, a third of the way through the movie in which my wife or my daughter had to, like, pause and, like, get a glass of water. And in that pausing, like, I just fundamentally realized that I was swept away, that I was like, oh, shoot, that's right. The world is changed. But for this past, you know, 40 minutes, we've been totally in this movie. And, like, that alone is valuable. But then, like, beyond that, you know, his speech at the end, like, what could be more the perfect metaphor for, like, you know, what we're going on? keep breathing even though there was no reason to hope and all my logic said that I would never see this place again so that's what I did I stayed alive I kept breathing and then one day that logic was proven all wrong because the tide came in, gave me a sale. Every episode, we are going to play a trivia game. And now I turn it over to Game Master Karina Longworth. This game is called Starting from the Bottom. 
Castaway and Forrest Gump were the two biggest live-action hits of Tom Hanks's career, at least thus far. As we discussed, he had an incredible run of seemingly non-stop hits from the 80s up until pretty recently. But they weren't all hits. In this game called Starting from the Bottom, I'm going to give you clues about some of Tom Hanks's lowest-grossing films that were widely released. These are five of his seven lowest-grossing films with numbers not adjusted for inflation. I omitted one of his lowest-grossing films because Ryan is friends with the director. Thank you. <laughs> and also I omitted one film that Hanks himself directed because that just seemed too cruel. <laughs> I'm going to give you clues about what the title of the film is, and you have to give me the title of the film. Are you ready to play starting from the bottom? Let's play! Question one. This CIA comedy, a remake of a French film, was its director's follow-up to Mr. Mom, and it was Hanks's first box office bomb. Oh, ding, ding, ding. After ding. the one, two... You don't want to hear the rest of the question? Oh, good. Read the rest of it. Read the rest of it. Good. Build the suspense. Okay. It was Hanks's first box office bomb after the one-two punch of Splash and Bachelor Party the previous year. Nate, I know it. Do you know it? I do. This is The, the Man, Man with One with Red one Shoe. Red Shoe. Boom. Correct. Uh, which gave the world Christopher's Lady in Red. Um, oh, wow. Oh, well, there you go. All right. Question number two. I have a feeling you guys are going to get this one, too. One of the famous flops of the 1990s, this movie was considered such a misfire that Hanks's next movie, A League of Their Own, was vaguely positioned as a comeback. I'm going to say The Bonfire of the Vanities. Yes, I think, think that is it. Correct. Ding, 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 ding. Question number three. This spoof of adventure epics in which Hanks played a rich kid who joins the Peace Corps is the film on which Tom began dating his co-star, Rita Wilson. I know this. Oh, you know I what? am blanking on this one. At first I thought it was going to be Joe versus the Volcano, but it is not. I think it's Volunteers. Is it volunteers? Well done. Correct. Ding, 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 ding. It brought them together. That's lovely. All right. Question number four. Based on a hit novel, this film features Hanks playing multiple roles across the movie's six storylines. Oh, I know this one. This is is based on the David Mitchell novel. This is Cloud Cloud Atlas. Atlas. Correct, which grossed $27 million domestically on a $100 million plus budget. All right, question number five, which is our last official question, but I have a bonus question, too. I love it. In this film, shockingly and inexplicably nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars, Tom Hanks dies on (laughs) 9-11. This is, uh, what's the name of that movie? It's extremely loud loud and and incredibly incredibly close. close. Correct. You guys are masters at starting from the bottom. <laughs> I love starting from the bottom. <laughs> it's our it's our forte. It's what we but do. Can, but can you get the bonus question? I sure hope so. Uh-oh. All right. Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close and Cloud Atlas were consecutive Tom Hanks releases. Though you can't call the 2010s his best decade at the box office, his bankability would bounce back a bit with two hit films in which he faced unexpected challenges while at the helm of modes of transportation. What were those two films called, and which one grossed more? I have one of them. One of them is Captain Phillips, right? That's the one that I have. 
Correct. Shoot. Shoot. What, what is the other one where he? It was a hit. He's captaining a vehicle that uh, encounters difficulties. Uh, it's certainly not Apollo 13, although the same could be said. But this is Apollo a film. 13. This is a film from the 2010s. Yeah, exactly. 2010s. Mm, shoot. Um. Oh God! You, you just you instinctively picture him. No, at the, at, at the at helm the of something. At the stern of a ship, like yeah, at the helm of something, at the helm of a ship, and so it's almost hard to. Every single thing, every single thing I can think of with a ship or plane in it, I can picture him in, falsely in that movie. Like Titanic, I picture him as oh, the captain. Oh, absolutely. Didn't he also uh, captain the Polar Express? This is Prime Hanks. Oh, that's right. <laughs> You've forgotten about Sully. Oh, Sully. Sully. Oh, oh Sully. how could we? Uh, the Miracle on the Hudson. So part of why we're doing this whole thing is to make sure that when all this thing is done that the theaters that we love going to are still there and so we are going to be donating each of us money to independent theaters that have meant something to us and we've decided on this first episode as kind of like putting that dollar in the tip jar for when we turn to you next time um that we uh, have chosen the theaters that uh were formative to us and in that we went to when we first fell in love with with movies so i grew up in los angeles um and unfortunately, a lot of the theaters that kind of stoked my cinephilia growing up no longer exist, like the Sunset Five in Hollywood and and the film program at the LA County Museum of Art. So I decided to um, choose a theater that was integral to kind of like me getting to the next level of obsessive cinephilia. And that is the Gene Siskel Film Center in Chicago, um, which is part of the Art Institute of Chicago, which is where I went for undergraduate and I lived in a dorm um, on the same floor with a bunch of other people who were super into movies, people who were even more into movies than I was. Um, and we would just go to the film center a couple times a week. And, you know, we'd do things like like watch every Robert Brisson film. Um, I saw my first Antonioni films there, my first Godard films. And, and I kind of learned how to watch a different kind of cinema, um, a non-Hollywood kind of cinema, and, you know, that kind of cinema, especially when you're 18 years old, involves a lot of patience. And it, it, you know, I've been thinking about that a lot lately, just in terms of this situation we're all in where we're isolated, it's lonely, and we just kind of have to, you know, endure it and ride it out. So um, I'm donating to the Gene Siskel Film Center for that reason. Uh, so I chose the American Cinematheque, which is here in Los Angeles, and uh, they have th- a couple of great things about them. They have theaters on the east side. Uh, they have the uh, Egyptian Theater in Hollywood and the west side. They have the Arrow in Santa Monica. They cover the waterfront. Uh, they do fantastic programming year-round. I've done events there. They have their incredible film noir series they do every year. And it's incredibly easy to support them right now. If you go on their website, the American Cinematheque, you can either become a member, which I highly recommend doing, and or you can also make a donation. And um, they are one of the jewels of cinema going in L.A. And if you love the movies and you live here, maybe uh, toss them a few bones. 
That's great. I am, um, I'm from Providence, Rhode Island, and um, there were sort of two great independent uh, movie theaters. There was the cable car, which uh, was great because it had couches. Um, but that recently, you know, after a really long run, like a 40-year run, was recently turned into some boutique coffee shop. But still standing is the Avon Cinema on Third Street, where I went a gajillion times. Um, but really starting really young, like my parents were sort of cinephiles, but would definitely go to see the independent movies, uh, you know, in art house movies that came to the Avon. And, you know, one of my very first memories of going to a movie was seeing Ralph Bakshi's Wizards there a little bit too young, which which for my early life was really like my favorite movie. And then like all throughout high school, it was like, you know, it was the place uh, I went to go see uh, Henry V and and like Water for Chocolate and, uh, you know, Dazed and Confused and things like that. Um, so I'm more than happy to help them uh, keep up the fight. Thank you very much, Ryan. I think this went well. Uh, if, I, if I may, if I may, just uh, real quickly, can I take this out on a high Please. note? Spin the wheel! Good Lord. <laughs> Nate! Nate! Spin the wheel! Oh, no. Starting next episode, we'll have more information about how you'll be able to contribute to help struggling movie theaters in this time of crisis. In the meantime, if you want to drop us a line or even make a pledge to donate when we're up and running, hit us up at smallpictureshow at gmail.com. Uh, next week, our guest is going to be our friend Amy Nicholson, who is one of our favorite movie critics and the host of Unspooled, a fantastic movie podcast that you should all check out. So let us find out what we are going to watch. Hello, Karina. Hello, Nate. It is your buddy Amy here. And you know, I think of all of us as uh, pretty savvy classic movie fans. And I think it is amazing that none of the three of us have ever watched From Here to Eternity. The major, like, beach makeout, hot sand wave movie that has Burt Lancaster and Deborah Keir. And let's watch this movie. I want to figure out what that kiss is about. So that's my challenge for us. Y'all in? Let's do it. So track down from here to eternity, and you're going to join us next week. In the meantime, make sure to subscribe to the show, rate it on iTunes, all that sort of stuff. But mostly, if you do like it, um, tell someone about it. Um, Meanwhile, you can find Karina at Karina Longworth on Twitter. You should please go to subscribe to You Must Remember This. It's fantastic. And you can find Nate on Twitter at The Memory Palace. And go subscribe to that fantastic podcast, too. Thanks, guys. We'll talk to you guys again.